0: Good morning church. It's so good to have you with us today. My name's Megan and we've got a few things coming up here at ABC that we want to make you aware of. Uh, We've got another blood drive coming and so if you are interested in giving back to the community in that way that would be fantastic. You can actually join me. I'll be there too on Wednesday June 8th here at church and we still have a lot of spots still to fill so if you're interested in that head to the website and you can sign up there. And coming up next week, we have our Sunday lunch here at church. So we'd love for you to stay after with us. It's after the 1045 service. Um, Have some lunch, visit with other church members, um, hang out. It'll be a great time. So that's next Sunday, Sunday lunch right here at church. And then coming up this Wednesday, we have our senior breakfast. So we just want to remind you all of that. Uh, Come on out and hear Pastor Jake. He'll be sharing for the morning. So come on out at 9 o'clock right here at church for our senior breakfast. Hey, I have one more announcement and I want to uh, remind you guys that VBS is coming and we still need a few more volunteers. We are so grateful for all of you who have signed up so far, but we still need about 25 people to come on out, have a great week with us, love on kids. It's gonna be a really fun time. If you are interested in that, VBS is June 13th through 17th, and you can sign up on our website and you can fill out the registration form there. If you have any questions, um, call the church office or email myself or Sandy, and we'd love to get you more information. Hey, we're glad that you joined us today. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next week.
1: Welcome to ABC, thanks for tuning in uh, this morning as we start our message. Um, I wanted to just pause for a brief minute. We're actually recording this on Wednesday and um, we just found out uh, less than 24 hours ago of this tragedy down in Texas at Rob Elementary School um, where we know that uh, there's been 21 people killed, tragically killed, um, just unheard of um, circumstances. Um, and it's uh, not only um, just sickening to think about, but, um, but also provides this um, sort of cloud of mourning over, um, over our country today. And so um, I wanted to just begin our, our message this morning by praying for these families. Um, what we know today, maybe uh, when you're watching here Sunday there might be more information, but what we know is there's um, 19 children and their families and two teachers Um, along with this gunman, Um, and so I'd like to just open our time together um, by praying for God's peace, his covering, his protection as well um, in the future, and just in the coming days ahead here, Um, but for these grieving families to find hope in the peace of Jesus Christ. So pray with me as we begin our time. Heavenly Father, we come before you. at a loss for words there are no human words that can describe uh, the tragedy that's taken place um, in our country and we ask that in these moments of of grief and confusion and frustration um, that you would meet these families you would meet these other children who've experienced intense trauma god you would walk them through um, what only a spiritual um, guiding presence could walk them through. There is no um, human wisdom that can navigate these kind of waters with these families. And so, Lord, would you please descend your peace? God, would you please cover? Would you please protect? Would you provide? And may the grieving process that um, is beginning now um, provide healing And uh, what we pray for most significantly, what we ask, God, is that you would work in the churches that are there, um, in the Christians that are on the ground, the people that have opportunity to speak truth and to speak messages of hope um, and of eternity. And I ask that you would use this circumstance to drive people to you, to eternity, to a relationship with you. Um, That's our hope. And so we're trusting you. In your precious name, I pray. Amen. Well as we uh, jump into Matthew last week, um, we had a, a great discussion as Gerald shared with us this distinction Jesus makes um, between uh, really killing and anger and talks about the sin of our heart and um, Jesus is going to present these statements you know where he's he's really helping us examine the sin of our hands versus the sin of of our heart. And, and this morning, uh, I just would like to begin by reading an excerpt from the passage that uh, pierces. Um, it's very sharp. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 29, it says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. And with that, I think I'll conclude the message. And you can do with that what you choose and um, interpret that how you, how you see fit. Now, just kidding, we're gonna talk about this, but these are hard words when you walk through a passage like this and go, What in the world is Jesus saying? And we know that Jesus' teaching was radical, and we know that uh, what he called his disciples to was extreme. And so uh, when you read this and then knowing and believing that Jesus, knew and saw the hearts of his disciples. I imagine him standing up uh, from his post there on the hill as he was preaching and reaching into his cloak and pulling out a blade and extending it out to Andrew or to Peter or to James and saying, okay, who's first? But luckily he didn't do that. And he didn't because that wasn't the point. He wasn't commanding his disciples to start cutting off appendages. And he wasn't commanding us as we were read this you know, 2,000 years later to cut off our arms or to gouge out our eyes. The point was to take a stand against sin that is so fierce that you would do anything necessary to avoid sin, that you would ruthlessly cut out sin in your lives and be extreme with eliminating the things that lead to sin. There's a book uh, written by John Mark Comer, few years back called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And uh, John Mark was talking about um, the, the rhythm that we live and really his message, his book is all about evaluating what we spend time doing and how much time we spend. But I just so appreciate his terminology, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Here's what he says about, um, about this, uh, this mindset. The mind is the portal, he says, to the soul. And what you fill your mind with will shape the trajectory of your character. Isn't that profound and true? What you fill your mind with will shape the trajectory of your character. And he goes on to say, in the end, your life is no more than the sum of what you gave your attention to, the ruthless elimination of hurry. In our case, the ruthless elimination of sin that we would cut it out at all cost. that we would pay close attention to what we fill our mind with, that we would evaluate everything in the knowledge that it contributes to the trajectory of our character. Look at the text with me, Matthew chapter five. We're gonna read uh, the first half of the passage and then the second half. Just four verses this morning. i want to read two verses and then we'll come back to the other two in a few minutes here. So the first uh, couple verses is uh, 27, 28. Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so Jesus continues on in these, you've heard it said, but I say statements. Your worldview says that what you do defines you, but my worldview, Jesus is saying, says that what you think about defines you. In the Judeo kingdom of the law, if your hand causes you to sin, then it would actually make sense to cut it off. Remove the hand, remove the instrument of sin, and you'll keep yourself from sin because everything that they did was seen as um, either sinful or holy. When, when you talk about the Jewish law, it had everything to do with practice and ritual and like we talked about a couple weeks ago, cleansing. It was this process and yet Jesus is shifting to the heart and he's saying it's not so much about your behavior, although that's important, it's also about your heart. In the kingdom of God, behavior's only half the battle. And the mind and the heart matters equally as much, if not more so. It's not just what you do, it's also what you think. It's what you dwell on. And so Jesus introduces this concept, although it was thread throughout the Old Testament. We'll point to a couple of those instances he introduces this concept of the sin of the heart. He's now dealing with sins of the heart, not sin of the hands or just our behavior, our actions, but it's what's in our mind. It's what we think about. It's what we dwell on, what we fantasize about. Those things are as equal sin. Isaiah 29 says, because his people, speaking of the people of Israel, draw near with their mouth, And honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And their fear for me is a commandment taught by men. They fear God because of the commandment of what to do or not do. They honor me with their lips because that's what's seen and what's heard. The outward expression, the things that you do, your obedience or disobedience respectively is what matters. And Jesus is saying, no, it's the heart. Because if you honor me with your lips, but in your heart you are far from me, then you're still no better off. He rebukes the, the uh, um, Pharisees this way a couple of times in, in the Gospels. Actually, quoting Isaiah 29, you'll see Jesus later on in Matthew quote Isaiah 29, where your heart is, where your mind is, there your body will follow. The things that you dwell on, that you rehearse in your mind, are eventually going to become what you do. I like how John Stott says he says for who is to know when the bridle of decency or convention will snap under the strain and the racehorse of our passions break loose. Who's to know when the things that you feel like you're maintaining control of on the outside are to let loose and the things that are really in your heart or your mind start to bleed out all over those around you? Because what you think and what's in your heart matters. Jesus is narrowing in specifically in this passage on sexual sin, and this is really important. In fact, Paul kind of comes back to that and focuses on this specific aspect of sin as being unique, as being set apart from other sin. He says this in 1 Corinthians 6:18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body? Or do you not know, Paul says, that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, that this is a sacred place, which makes this a sacred sin, which makes it a sin against not only your body, but your soul, which impacts others, which impacts relationships, which impacts your view of others and your view of relationships. Could we say that the heart is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit and sexual sin therefore becomes a heart issue. Isn't that what Jesus is saying here? This is a heart issue. Sexual sin is a heart issue with deeper implications than other sin. I think there's a distinction here. I can argue it from the gospels and Paul's epistles that this becomes um, a, a sin of greater consequence than some other, not than all other, but than some other Sins. And yet, it's so important for us to evaluate it this way because in our society, in our culture, this is explained away by universalism, right? Well, it's every man's battle, you might have heard said, or every woman's battle. Everybody struggles with sexual sin or sexual temptation, and so we have normalized it. Our culture has normalized it to the point where they believe that everybody's going to have this baseline level of sin in their lives, and so we might as well just resign ourselves to the fact that this is going to be who we are, and this is what we're going to struggle with and deal with. And God, through Jesus, in this passage is saying, No! Cut it out! Don't settle, don't allow for this sin to continue in your heart and your mind. It's as good as committing adultery. You might say, well it's harder for me in the day and time we live in as a young man or a young woman than the people of biblical times and while our culture has um, degraded quickly in this area, I would argue that the sexual sin of the mind the temptation of lust, the distortion of human sexuality was just as bad in first century Corinth as it is today. We don't get a pass just because it's a hard place in time and season and era to live in. I wanna be really clear about what Jesus is talking about and, and Paul's referencing in First Corinthians. The sin of lust committed in your heart entertained by pornographic images, movies, by novels, video games, social media, is as destructive as adultery itself. That's what Jesus is saying. The fact that it's more accessible or more prevalent or more socially acceptable or that maybe you believe everyone's doing it, that everyone has this same struggle that doesn't minimize the pain or the damage or the consequences of this sexual sin. We need to take this very seriously. Jesus is teaching that if you look at a woman who is not your wife, if you look at a man who is not your husband, and you imagine in your mind what it might be like to be with them, that's as good as adultery. Because he knows that what's in your heart, what you're dwelling on in your mind, ultimately becomes you. Again, this quote from, John Mark Comer, the mind is the portal to the soul. And what you fill your mind with will shape the trajectory of your character. I believe every bit of that is true. That you become what you dwell on. And so, church, we need to ruthlessly eliminate sin. We need to to cut it out, do whatever it takes. Jesus is in the middle of a sequence here regarding the heart. Talking about the sin of the heart. And he shifts to the body in the second half of this passage. And it's what we open with this morning. But I want to um, just read these last two verses. 29 and 30 says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go in. hell. To hell. Again, Jesus is using symbolism here, very specifically. It's not as if he's saying you need to all go literally cut off every body part that's potentially leading you to sin. If that were true, and we'd all be walking around with a lot fewer limbs, myself included. But he's talking about eliminating the sins of the heart, and so he uses this symbolism of a blade, It's not about the blade, it's about the approach. It's not about uh, specifically cutting off a hand or or out an eye or off a foot or a toe or an ear or whatever that might be. It's about ruthlessly eliminating sin. And he's not saying that if you don't cut off your arm, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. He's saying if you don't deal with the sin problem, then you're going to have a heart problem. Joseph Parker says a man doesn't enter heaven enter into heaven just because he has one eye, nor does he cast into hell because he has two eyes. He puts it very bluntly and plainly that this is not a literal passage of Jesus saying cut everything off until you're just a stump. Do you know why? Because he's talking about heart issues. Think about it. What would be the next organ or body part that you would need to cut out in dealing with heart issues? Is that you'd cut out your heart? It's not what he's saying. And clearly, as I mentioned before, you didn't hand anyone a blade and say, okay, who's first? Let's take care of this right here, right now. The reality is for you and for me, likely that we'd be missing a lot more than one hand and one eye. If this is a symbol, then what does it symbolize for you? That's the real question. What does it symbolize for me? It might be different for you than it is for me. But the question is what, what tools, resources, Things that were intended to be functional as a hand is keeping you from sin. What things do you have in your life that need to be cut off, that you need to eliminate, that you need to go completely ruthless against? If something you own is keeping you from being refined, from growing toward holiness, get rid of it. When Jesus says, cut it off, that might mean literally cutting something off. Cut off that social media account. Throw out your gaming computer. Burn some books if you have to that have caught you up in some sort of fantasy. Cancel a streaming service if that's what you need. Sell your smartphone and get a dumb phone. I don't know what it is for you. I'm not sure what the tool is or the resource or the thing that's causing you to sin that Jesus is saying, just get rid of it. Don't mess with it. Don't play with it. Don't go there. It's not worth it. Would you rather get caught into sin and completely be led astray or cut that thing off and live without that thing so that you can have... Eternal life and all that God is calling you to do, whatever it takes to flee sexual sin. We need to be ruthless in our elimination of sin. There's a kind of a funny um, story in Genesis chapter 39. I, I just appreciate that both the the severity of uh, the consequence and, and the humor in the story. You have Joseph, um, if you remember, who was a Hebrew um, that was elevated in Egypt into the house of Potiphar who was ruling the land and Joseph became second in command in the house and apparently he was a pretty good-looking young man and so caught the eye of Potiphar's wife, of his ruler's wife. And there's a series of conversations that takes place in Genesis 39 where um, you can kind of put the pieces together and realize there's these interactions that obviously sparked some degree of attraction between the two. I don't know that it was entirely one-sided, although it could have been. Joseph may have been 100% um, blameless and pure in heart, but the point is when it came down to acting on this flirtatious relationship, Joseph realized that he had to do whatever it Took to eliminate sin, to keep from sinning. And so here's what happens in 39, verse 10. As she spoke to Joseph day after day, this is Potiphar's wife, just a very matter of fact way to describe this scene. Listen to it. Um, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was in the house, she caught him by his garment and said, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled. And got out of the house. He ran outside without his clothes on. That's what he was committed to. He was so ruthless in his elimination of sin. He's gonna run out, embarrass himself, and ultimately get arrested as a result, be thrown in jail, and this whole cycle starts over. But God was with Joseph because he was pure in heart. He said, No, I'm not gonna give in to the temptation. Was there plenty of excuse for it? Yeah, was there plenty of room for it? Sure. But he understood that the consequence of giving in to that sin was far worse than the consequence of fleeing it. And that's what Jesus is saying. Weigh the consequence here. You want to have one hand and go on living in the holiness and the purity that I've called you to, or you want to have two hands and give in to all of the temptation that's surrounding you? Recognizing the consequence for sin of the heart. It's the third point there consequences of sins of the heart final verse here finishes. The second half says, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. I want to talk about what Jesus means here. It's confusing. It sort of feels like if I don't cut off my hand, I go to hell. And Jesus is referencing a literal hell. There's a lot of symbolism in this passage, but I want to be clear that this is a reference to the literal hell. This is Ge'enna. It's what Gerald talked about last week. It's a place of torment, a place uh, in the valley of Hinnom, um, on the south side of the city of Jerusalem, a place in the Old Testament that was used for human sacrifice, a place during New Testament times that was literally just a trash heap where they burned rubbish. This is a literal a literal torment, a literal punishment Jesus is talking about when he references hell. In fact, Isaiah references it too in the final chapter of his um, prophecy he says in 66 verse 24 and they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me for their worms shall not die their fire shall not be quenched and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh these are strong words Jesus's reference to hell is strong and clear and literal and so it causes us to pause and say if this is really what's at stake gosh, then I need to lean in and take this seriously. If this really is a a literal hell that Jesus is talking about, then why wouldn't I cut off my hand? And then we have to kind of wrestle with the difference between the symbol and the the literal destination. And I want you to understand something. This This is potentially confusing as we get up to this passage that when we read through this... We need to understand the context and the timing specifically, that Jesus was preaching this to a group of men and women that were basing their entire salvation on the act of the law, the outward obedience to the law. This was a group of people he was addressing before the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, of the Lamb of God. This was a pre-gospel message. Jesus had not gone to the cross. He had not atoned for the sin of all humanity. He He had not resurrected. And so when he's talking to them in their context people who believe that they need to completely restore their behavior, their obedience in order to enter heaven, he's completely accurate in saying yes, but there's something harder. There's something more difficult than even your behavior, it's your mind. And how in the world could you possibly reconcile all the sins of your mind with the desire to go to heaven or to escape hell? And so what he's leading up in this process is he's bringing them to this point of tension like we did a couple weeks ago where it's like, but I I couldn't possibly live there, Jesus. I couldn't possibly be in this perfect state of mind all the time. And he's bringing them to this point where they understand the necessity for a redeemer. And that's the gospel. And so when he warns this group of people about hell, he's warning them to build the tension so that they can see and believe and know that there is no possible way of escaping that fire of hell without someone redeeming them and someone forgiving them. And so when Jesus actually presents the gospel, when it becomes clear, it's played out in front of them and they start to see and believe that he, in fact, was the sin-atoning sacrifice, the replacement for their punishment, it means the world. It's everything. Because apart from that, there's, there's no possible way we could enter into heaven and escape the fire of hell, the punishment of hell. So it makes this gospel story so much more potent. Now, for you and for me this morning, as we read this, We live in a day where we already have received the gift of forgiveness through Jesus Christ. So we look back on this and say what Jesus is getting at is that we need to ruthlessly eliminate sin. It's not that our sin will send us to hell if we've embraced the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. If we've received the forgiveness, the gift of eternal life, our sin has already been forgiven, paid for, done, not counted against us. But think about it this way. If our sin was leading us to the edge of a cliff and if it was going to ultimately result in death, that we were going to plummet to the bottom of that canyon off of a cliff and die in our sin. And Jesus stopped us. And he sacrificed his own life for the cliff, on the cliff, so that we weren't having to pay the price of our sin. We weren't having to die in our own ignorance, wouldn't you stay as far away from the edge of the cliff as possible? If that's actually what happened, if if you were running towards a cliff to your own death and Jesus saved you, he said, I'm gonna die so that you don't have to. I don't want you to plummet to your death. I want you to be spared from the fire and the punishment of hell. And so I'm gonna sacrifice my life so that you can be free, that you can have heaven and have eternity. If that really happened, if that's what took place for you and for me, wouldn't we stay as far away from the cliff as possible and say, I'm never going back there? That's the heart and the intention of Jesus Christ. It's not that if you stumble and fall into temptation or sin, that it's going to somehow remove that gift of salvation. That's not biblical. That's not what the gospel tells us or teaches us. It's that the heart of God for his people is that we would run as far away from the edge of that cliff as possible. We would flee sin, flee sexual temptation, knowing that that was the very thing that was killing us. And then we recognize and acknowledge that even though we may not forfeit our eternity, that even though our sin may not lead to death because we've been forgiven by Jesus Christ, that it still has earthly consequence. And that's maybe one of the most important things we could conclude with is understanding those consequences and grow in our desire to be set free from the death in relationship that sin causes, from the death in character that sin causes, from the death in, in productivity or in fruit that sin causes, that death has, con- or sin has consequences. They may not be death for you and I who've embraced a faith in Jesus Christ and have received forgiveness, that we've received eternal life, but they still have consequence. My hope is that this passage, as we read this and we try to wrap our mind, what is Jesus saying when he says, even sin in your mind is sin, and you need to cut out every sin in your life possible. Go to every extent. Go to great lengths to remove sin, to flee from sin, run away from the edge of the cliff. My hope is that as we read that and we hear this passage, that it becomes really sobering for you and for me this morning. That we would face the reality that every single one of us has the ability to make one more wrong decision and compromise everything that we've worked for, that there are earthly consequences for our sin. When Jesus says cut it off, I hear that as a wake up call. It's like someone's grabbing our shoulders and shaking us, saying, Wake up! Wake up! Stop! don't go back near the edge of the cliff. Snap out of the delusion that your sin really isn't hurting anyone because it is. Wake up to the lie that your sin has no consequence because you've been forgiven. That's not true. You may be one step, three, four, five steps into some sort of pattern of sin, some sort of inappropriate behavior or inappropriate relationship or heading towards addiction. I don't know how far you, in, but you are, but no matter how far, it's not too far for you to turn around and run to come back. Wake up and see that you're in a pot of heating up water, being desensitized by the changing temperature around you and becoming numb to the fact that the pot of boiling water you're in will actually kill you. But the problem with addiction is believing that you're not being held captive. People who've admitted that they're addicts know this, that that's the hardest and most important first step is just admitting it. And every step you take further toward that sin, although it may seem benign or innocent, is only further shackling you to the cell of your addiction. I think there are some that are maybe watching that you're tuning in and walking through this this message um, that know by the work of the Holy Spirit, maybe the conviction of the Holy Spirit that know the step they need to take. You may already feel it right now. You might believe you need to pick up your phone and hand it to your spouse and show them what's on the screen. You may need to hand it to a parent or or a trusted friend and say, I I wanna break this cycle of addiction. There are some of you watching, listening, and the Holy Spirit's convicting you to terminate a text thread to end that conversation, not let it go any further. There are some that need to take some, some books out of the library or delete them from your tablet, to turn from the edge of the cliff and run. Cut off whatever might be causing you to sin. Be ruthless about it. Some of you need to just have a simple conversation and say, I I need to tell you something. That might be with a roommate or a friend or a spouse. Simply say, I wanna break this cycle right here, right now because I know that although I may be saved and redeemed from my sinful nature, that God has given me the gift of eternal life, which he has if you're in Christ, that your sinful behavior, that your patterns of unrighteousness will still have consequences. And if you wanna redeem those sinful choices and turn them into something good, then run to others, run to the church, come away from the edge of the cliff and submit yourself to the care of another. We have a lot of resources at ABC, a lot of opportunity. There's Thursday night recovery group. We call it Celebrate Recovery. They meet every Thursday night. There's open share groups right after the service where you can just lean in and share with some people that are gonna keep that in confidence. We have a men's Bible studies. We have a men's group that meets specifically dealing with the issue of purity. We have a young adult Sunday night uh, community group, Young Adult Life, they meet and they, they split into into um, men and women's groups to specifically talk about things that those groups are dealing with and struggling with. You can come down and meet me or any of the other staff or pastors during the week and, and just process through some steps, but please don't stay alone in your frustration, your potential addiction, your sin. Flee from it, cut it off. Get rid of it. Deal with it. Step into the light and allow for God to shine in the darkest corners of your heart so that you can experience freedom from sin. Ruthlessly eliminate your sin knowing that that's the heart of God for us is that his children would pursue holiness and that's the best way for us to live. Let me pray. God, even as I'm just reading through this passage again, I, I, I get um, such a strong message, a shouting message by your words of the, the necessity, God, to run and to flee from sin. I'm recognizing, God, that as you've talked about the difference between our outward behavior, our, our actions, and our heart and our thoughts that the sins of the mind and the heart are just as dangerous, if not more so. So Lord, I ask that you would help us to cleanse our minds as a church, each one of us, to check what we're feeding ourselves, to check what what we're looking at, what we're listening to, what we're reading, And to allow for truth to inform our thought processes. To allow for your word, God, for healthy and holy relationships to be the thing that we dwell on when we're lying awake at night or alone. Lord, that we would think about you, think about eternity, think about the holiness that you've called us to. And so, Lord, give us truth to dwell on. God, not, not sin and not temptation not things of this world. May we cut them all out ruthlessly, God, and pursue righteousness as we move toward you. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you guys can join us on campus sometime soon. Our services are at 8, 9, and 1045 all inside, and uh, we'd love to see you. Have a lot of opportunity to engage this summer. Um, there's quite a few events, opportunities, and um, a couple even new groups that are starting up. So check in with us if there's anything we can do to help you connect at ABC. Um, really thankful for you. Have a great Sunday, and I will see you next weekend.